Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 50 of the Essential X Lapsed, where, uh, yeah, it's a milestone day, I, I guess. I don't have anything special planned, and in fact, I'm still not quite feeling 100%, so, uh, I don't know what's gonna happen <laughs> during the course of this episode, but, uh, yeah, 50 episodes, how about that? I remember when we hit 50 of, uh, you know, regular X-Laps, and I thought that that was just like an insurmountable sort of thing there. It's like, I can't believe we hit 50. And here we are hitting 50 on uh, the the sister program here, which, boy, when we started Essentials, I never I never saw it going all that long. But, uh, hey, here we are. We're having a good time. And, uh, well, I don't know if that good time's going to extend to today's issue. Today's issue is... Uh, <laughs> It's not that great. Uh, and as I mentioned here, I'm still not feeling quite 100%. I want to thank the folks who sent out uh, well wishes for me and my uh, side effects from my booster shot, which it makes me feel like uh, quite a complainer, you know, like, ah, uh, you know, I'm a little sniffy and uh, and I have no sense of taste and it's it just seems, I don't know. But uh, the sense of taste is back. I... Uh, I brushed the bejesus out of my tongue and teeth uh, yesterday morning, and I think perhaps what I had going on was uh, maybe excessive dry mouth from the shot rather than a loss of uh, taste altogether. In any event, the taste is back. The headache is still kind of lingering, kind of comes and goes, but I also got to recognize that uh, we are in the throes of you know Arizona autumn, which is to say... We could wake up in the morning and find out it's going to be 65 degrees that day or 95 degrees that day. And it's been kind of both late, which my body never really reacts all that well to. So maybe that in association or conjunction with the booster shot, just a perfect storm of, uh, you know, crap, I guess. Uh, now, speaking of, well, I don't want to say speaking of crap, but uh, speaking of a story that's uh, a little there... Uh, this is going to be X-Men number 40, January 1968 cover date. We're finally in 1968. It feels like we were in 1967 for, like, literally a year. But here we are in 1968. Our story, we got two, of course. We have the backup as well as the feature. And the feature is called Mark of the Monster, written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Don Heck, inks by George Tuska, letters Artie Simic, colors, uh, you know, that, that guy who does colors, Edits, Stan Lee, cover price, 12 cents. Now we open in the Danger Room, where, you know, we haven't really been there in quite a while. So this is uh, a little refreshing, I guess. And all of our heroes are wearing their new costumes, of course. Uh, Beast is doing some sort of, like, tightrope walk while avoiding force beams. Now Bobby, prankster that he is, decides to ice up Hank's walkway, causing him to trip up and go headfirst into one of those force beams, killing him instantly. Well, well, no, no, it actually just makes him kind of mad. Now, he claims that Kid Cool just gave him a headache that not even Excedrin could cure. And, you know, it's been a while since I heard of Excedrin, so I had to check to make sure it was still a thing that exists. And it, it in fact, does. Excedrin is still a thing. So if you are an Excedrin user, by the way, make sure to check your bottles to make sure there are no holes in them. Uh, that's an actual, like, ongoing recall reported on their website. So uh, remember, folks. Chris cares. Anyway, before Beast can exact his revenge on Iceman, Professor X gives them all the mental get over here, and so they go. Now, before they get down to it, Warren asks Jean if she and the Professor are working on some sort of a hush-hush project, to which she replies, yes, 
and no. We'll just assume that that's something innocent. Now, in Xavier's office, our heroes are told about Frankenstein's monster. Not the movie monster, mind you, but the real one. The eight-foot-tall humanoid referred to by Mary Shelley. Now, you see, Xavier always thought that this novel was based on actual events and occurrences, but now it's all but confirmed. Xavier explains that he had just accidentally intercepted a radio message from New York Harbor, which reported that a mammoth of a figure was found encased in solid ice somewhere in the Arctic. Having his curiosity piqued, Chuck sends his astral form there to get a better look. And what do you know, it's friggin' Frankenstein! Here's a question. Uh, Do you get annoyed when people refer to the monster himself as Frankenstein? Like, are you someone who corrects the people who do that? Because, like, just stop. Like, you're not impressing anybody. Anyway, Xavier recounts the end of the 1818 novel where Victor Frankenstein pursued the monster into the Arctic. Now, I've never read the book. There weren't enough pictures in it for me, so I'm just going to take Chuck's word for it. Now, it was said that the monster leapt into the icy drink or onto an ice floe or something and, and just perished. But now, it would appear that the monster is back. Gene asks if the uh, professor thinks the creature could be a mutant. To which he says, nah, nah, this monster was just a super powerful android, but perhaps Dr. Frankenstein himself was a mutant. Gene agrees due to the doc's highly advanced brain. Xavier informs the kid that the Frankenstein android has just been taken to the city museum where they're planning on defrosting him, which, well, probably wouldn't be all that good a thing. And so the X-Men are dispatched to stop this from happening. Y'all think they'll be successful? Hmm. Well, how about we shift scenes over to the back room of the nebulous city museum where we got a couple of goofballs hard at work defrosting the, uh, the big bad here. Now, a Dr. Powell has taken point, and he's going against the government's orders not to defrost the creature. His assistant, dude with glasses, tries to talk him out of it, but gets kicked out for his troubles. Meanwhile, the X-Men, in their civvies, arrive at the museum. Now, they're told that the place is uh, closed for the evening, as they uh, put put together some exciting new exhibits. And so, Jean uses her TK to slam the guard into the wall, which knocks his ass out. Just then, our heroes hear a tremendous crash coming from inside, and it's Frankenstein. Or or Frankenstein's monster, whatever. Uh, Dr. Powell sidesteps the it's alive, it's alive line and just says the monster lives. Now, his celebration is short-lived, however, as the monster has a mind of his own. He's bust through walls. He's just, ain't no one gonna stop or control this creature is the point. The X-Men enter the scene and Warren takes point. Frankenstein, sadly, isn't dazzled by Angel's new suspenders and just punches him right in the face. It's worth noting, the Frankenstein monster here is pretty smart. He can speak in full sentences and seemingly reason. Um, Now, he claims to hate puny humans, which I wonder if uh, a certain monster can file infringement on that. Uh, What's more, uh, Frank claims to hate puny humans in costumes, worst of all. Beast is next. He swoops in with his signature dropkick, which doesn't do diddly squat. Cyclops lets loose with an optic blast, which the monster simply absorbs as though he's Bishop or something. Now, before Frank can grab him, Gene TKs Scott to safety. Just then, Big Frank delivers an optic blast of his own, which pretty much decimates our team, and the monster then saunters out. The museum manager enters the scene, having just called the police, and discovers nobody but the exemplary X-Men lingering about and so he assumes they're responsible for all the ruckus. 
And I guess in fairness they are responsible for at least some of it uh, Bobby ices the manager up, probably killing him The X-Men then flee the scene in their roles Professor X sends Angel ahead to recon, which is pretty much Warren's most useful quality And we follow our flying friend as he tracks the path of destruction left in the wake of Big Frank uh, It looks like the monster headed to the docks and onto a freighter, which just left port Bobby asks the prof when he's going to get any action Xavier tells him to cool his jets, no pun intended, and claims that he had a premonition about how this will all play out, so just, you know, sit tight. Next thing we know, the X-Men are uh, helicoptered over to that freighter, where they're met by a bunch of armed goon types, because why wouldn't they be? Our heroes use some extra mild force against these goofs, which, uh, you know, extra mild tells me, you know, they, they use taco sauce on them, I don't know. The professor then uses the full extent of his powers to keep the crew down. The X-Men go about searching the ship, during which Big Frank sneak attacks the Barefoot Beast. Now Bobby once again asks the Professor when he could just like let loose with Iceman Maneuver A, but he's gotta wait. Angel then lassos Frankenstein and hoists him up with the mast, but the monster is too heavy and the rope snaps. Frank then heads over to some of the freight and decides to play Donkey Kong, just chucking barrels at our heroes. Gene is able to TK away one of the barrels, but... Unfortunately, it's as though Frankenstein grabbed, like, the bottom can in a soup can pyramid at the grocery store because the barrels just go everywhere, even smacking into Kid Cool himself. Frankenstein goes on about hating puny humans in costumes some more until the professor delivers a psychic message that he is the one in charge here. You see, he sent the costumed geeks to stop him. And so if Big Frank wants a win, he's going to have to take him down. And so the monster approaches Xavier, but gets held back by his mental bolts. Now you see, the Frankenstein android has no brain for Xavier to control, and yet he has enough of a mind to be telepathically spoken to? Uh, um, okay, anyway. Now it's here that Chuck commands that Bobby just go ape, and so he does. He just lays into Big Frank with the sum total of his iciness, and then with a raccoon, Frankenstein explodes. And the day is one. As we enter our wrap-up, Professor X shares with the X-Men the true story of this Frankenstein android. It was actually created by an alien race and was set to be the first interstellar ambassador to Earth. But it went berserk due to some sort of a malfunction. Xavier wonders just how Mary Shelley found out about all of this. Maybe she's a mutant. Maybe she's an alien. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe, you know, who cares? Anyway, the next day's newspaper has the news of the you know, whole freighter thing, only with all the Frankensteininess left out of it. Professor X had to mind-wipe everybody on board, you see, and so the X-Men's exploits will go unreported and uncelebrated. Xavier reminds the team that, you know, recognition is not what it's all about. It's all about doing the right thing. Especially when that right thing has to do with wiping minds, I guess. Um... Our next story, our backup story, our featurette in the Origins of the X-Men series is called The First Evil Mutant, written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Warner Roth, inks John Verporten, letters Al Kurzrock, colors by... and edits by Stan Lee. Now we open, we pick up right where we left off. Scott is in that cabin with the first evil mutant, Jack Winters. So we got a Winters and a Summers in there. All right. Uh, Now Jack tells Scott that he knows he's a mutant, and he's pretty sure he's the same one who was responsible for the Michigas at the Capitol earlier today. I thought the orphanage said that Scott was in New York City. I don't know. Anyway, 
Scott asks why Jack isn't wearing fancy specs like his, and then wonders if there might be more to being a mutant than just having deadly cursed eyes. Jack says he'll explain soon, but first, they gotta jam out. And so they bamf on out of the cabin. Well, technically, they poof out. Uh, Seconds later, a pair of officers enter the now-abandoned cabin. Back at the mansion, Professor X uses his Cyberno machine to try and get a bead on the young mutant. Now, Cyberno is like a beta version of Cerebro, and was named as such to lampshade an earlier error in dialogue where Xavier referred to Cerebro as Cyberno. I don't don't remember exactly which issue this was, but I suppose it really doesn't matter. Um, You know, we've got Rascally Roy here to help us keep things straight, and that's really all we need to worry about. Anyway, Xavier not only finds Scott, but he finds a second mutant as well. But they both vanish, probably due to the uh, teleportation. We rejoin Jack and Slim as they rematerialize inside a nearby nuclear power plant. Now, Winters speaks of a plan that he had a while back to, to like steal a bunch of radioactive materials here so that he can sell them to the big boss to pay off his gambling debts. Now, when he tried to do this, well, it went kind of caca. There was uh, some sort of a radioactive chain reaction, a big explosion. This rendered Jack's hands horribly injured. Or so he thought. What the explosion actually did was make his hands into diamonds. Which, uh, hey, maybe uh, this is why Scott had such an attraction to Emma Frost uh, around the Morrison time there, huh? Well, Jack removes his big yellow gloves to show off his shiny, indestructible paws. He now refers to himself as Jack of Diamonds, and he chops down a steel beam to illustrate what he might do to Scott if he doesn't help him out. And Scott kind of just cowers, realizing this guy's a friggin' lunatic. Just then, Xavier wheels in. Now, Jack demands Scott use his deadly cursed eyes on the professor, but he's kind of too busy shaking like a leaf. And so we wrap up with Jack of Diamonds threatening to kill Professor X. And you know, uh, over on the main show, I will give uh, Ben Percy a lot of grief, our X-Force and Wolverine writer, for, um, like, dropping a factoid into a story and then, like, making that entire story serve that factoid. I I would say something like, well, you know, I guess we know which volume of the encyclopedia Ben Percy read this week. You know, like, it's a very, very forced sort of storytelling where it's, he just really wants to show you something he learned. In, in the spirit of fairness, this issue feels a lot like Roy Thomas beating us over the head with the fact that, uh, you know, the Frankenstein novel is different from the Frankenstein movie. And what's more, he really, really wants us to know that he read the novel. Now, that's not to say that this isn't a decent idea for a story. I mean, because it's, it's a fine story. It's a silly story. It's maybe not a necessary story, but it's not a bad story. It's also not a story that necessarily screams X-Men. So this feels like it could have been in any book that Roy was writing. Don't know why it got shoved into X-Men other than perhaps they just didn't know what to do this month. Uh, Like I said at the end of uh, last episode, we're about to enter some like weird times for the X-Men here before things sort of kind of settle and then go nuts again. I can't claim to know what the sales charts looked like back then, you know, the newsstand distribution charts or whatever. But if I had to guess, I would... Figure maybe the X-Men are um, maybe in the bottom half of the, uh, the Marvel mags that come out. So maybe there's a little bit more freedom to do silly stuff like this. Uh, maybe, you know, they were hoping that, hey, sales are suffering, let's throw Frankenstein on a cover. Maybe that'll inspire people to pick it up. I mean, Frankenstein is 
a very recognizable character, and I could certainly see people picking this up out of curiosity. Unfortunately for me, I just didn't care for it. I didn't think it was all that great a story. Um, this one is uh, being included for completionist's sake, and perhaps completionist's sake only in our, uh, in our essential endeavor here, as we weave our way, hopefully, to uh, brighter days. Um, the backup strip, eh, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was something. Here we get a little bit of a history on Jack of Diamonds, and... Um, well, we end with a cliffhanger that uh, we know how it's going to wind up. So, eh, you know, it, it it's it's an origin story. It's doing its job as an origin story. It's just, uh, you know, kind of there. But I really don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about this one, as it uh, is probably abundantly clear since I'm kind of struggling for uh, things to say. My bullet point notes were basically, I didn't like this, and Roy really wanted us to know he read Frankenstein. So I'm trying to embellish or expand upon that as, uh, as much as I can. But rather than uh, keep going around the bend here, let's hop into our next segment here where we go into the mutant mailbox. We're going to start with Robert in Massachusetts, who writes to point out an error in issue 36. Now, if you remember in that issue, the X-Men's Rolls-Royce got towed because they parked in front of a fire hydrant, Right. What they told us in the story was that there was a sign obscuring the fire hydrant, so the X-Men didn't realize it was there. Well, Robert, uh, being perceptive, he uh, points out that somehow this hydrant jumped from one side of the street to the other. Which, yeah, upon uh, looking back, it sure in the heck does. Uh, Now, Stan says he hoped that no one would notice that boner and sends Robert a fire-resistant no-prize for his perceptive peepers. Next up, we got Doug in Iowa with his second letter. Now, he says that he is member 2949 of the MMMS. Now, he wants to know how Angel's wings fit through the tiny slits in his uniform, and he wants to know how to pronounce Mandarin. Is it Mandarin, or is it Mandarin? Now, Stan says he doesn't know how Angel's outfit works, it just does. And also, it's Mandarin, with emphasis on the first syllable. Uh, he had to confer with Rascally Roy, though, because, did you know, he used to be a high school English teacher? Because he totally was. Next up, Lewis in California. It's... I don't know why... I'm, we talk about, you know, the waste of effort and time, you know, licking the stamp, writing the thing, folding the paper, yada, 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 walk to the mailbox. Lewis basically gives us a recitation of events from X-Men number 36. Like soup to nuts. Uh, but he throws a gag in at the end about Mechano, Meccano's father, giving the X-Men cabbage instead of cash so that they could sneak into Europe as salad. Huh? Okay, well, Stan is just as baffled as we are, and he just asks, like, where's the oil and vinegar? So, fair enough. John in Sydney, Australia, loves Marvel and informs us that in the Down Under, they receive their books two months after the USA. He says that he would like to join the MMMS, and that's about it. Uh, It's enough to get printed because it's international, and you could basically say anything you want so long as you're writing from outside of America, and Stan will print it. Uh, Stan replies by saying he will personally send John an MMMS membership kit right away. Connie in Maine. Now, you know how we've been getting a couple of letters from folks uh, complaining that Scott should just get contact lenses? And you know how every single time that happens, Stan writes them back asking how Scott could ever possibly put contact lenses into his deadly cursed eyes? Well, Connie's got an idea. She thinks she's going to no-prize this, but, uh, hmm. 
I hope she didn't uh, hope she didn't already put that in her Christmas letter for the year because uh, she says that they should have Professor X build a room made out of the same stuff as Scott's glasses so he could put his contacts in in there. She also wants to know what color Scott's eyes actually are. She hopes they're gray because gray means wisdom. Now Stan gives the ruby quartz room idea the big thumbs down, and he says that Scott's eyes are brown. Richard in Colorado loved issue 37. He was really happy to see the Andrew Heck art pairing. He dug seeing the X-Men's old foes and uh, also enjoyed the new ones like Changeling and Mutant Master. He says he can't wait to see the first installment of the Origins of the X-Men backup featurette. Stan replies to ask, uh, hey, what do you think of the new featurette? Write back in and let us know. So, Richard, the uh, ball is in your court. We got our final letter here, and it's from Ken in Minnesota. And he thinks the current X-Men kind of suck. Now, he's not all that jazzed by the Factor 3 story, and he guesses that it'll end with a dumpy new villain being introduced and being beaten right away. Well... (laughs) Now, he suggests that Marvel is trying to breathe life into the flagging X-Men book by having Spider-Man and Doctor Strange guest star. So a little bit more fuel to the fire with our, you know, X-Men suck in the sales department uh, theory. Now, he says once Factor 3 gets beaten, we'll probably just get an equally endless and boring Factor 4 story arc. And he wants the X-Men to go back to telling Masterpiece-type stories. And, I mean, let's go back in time here. Masterpiece X-Men stories from the original 66, the original, I guess, 30-whatever here, 38, 39. What would you say the Masterpiece issues are? Any Anybody? Anybody? Well... Ken in Minnesota cites The Sentinels, Lucifer, and the the Untouchable Stories as masterpieces. Well, you missed it by that much, Ken. Um, Now, he's not a fan of the artistic instability on the X-Men of late. You know, we've had a handful of different pencilers bellying up to their artboards for the past little while here. Stan replies with a sheesh. So I, I guess that button that we saw, the MMMS button that said just said sheesh as precedent... And then he says he's going to have to dry his eyes after reading such a horrible letter. But let's not cry too long, because now we have the bullpen bulletins, which simply say, face front, hang loose, enough said. With a parenthetical saying, it's easier than thinking up a new title, which is unfortunate. I was looking forward to a tongue twister. Okay, item. In the spirit of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, Marvel will be adding Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders to the fold. And it's on sale now. Written by Gary Friedrich, with pencils by Dick Ayers, and inks by Golden Age Marvel returnee Sid Shores. Item! The Captain Marvel issue of Marvel Superheroes will stay on sale for a second month to make sure everyone can get their copy. So I guess even in the Silver Age, books called Captain Marvel uh, didn't sell all that well. Item! Don't you dare miss the 100th issue of Tales to Astonish, which features a book-length thriller wherein Submariner battles the Hulk. Written by Stan himself, with art by Marie Severin and Dan Atkins. Item! George Tuska is back at Marvel to stay. You see, he'd taken an extended leave of absence to illustrate the Buck Rogers newspaper strip, but he's back. Item! Introducing Marvel's newest scribe, Archie Goodwin. Archie's been an editor and a writer for another company or two, and uh, just recently saw the light. And yeah, Archie had been writing for Warren and DC National. Now, he's going to be writing Iron Man and Submariner, and Stan says if he plays his cards right, he might get a shot at writing Millie the Model. Item! More MMMS ranking discussion here. This time out, the Titanic True Believer, a TTB. 
Stan describes this as the hard-earned and well-deserved title for anyone who has ever won a noteworthy no-prize. We get a wrap-up section, which just introduces the latest Stan Soapbox, so Stan Soapbox! Now, folks have been writing in to inquire what that little stamp in the corner of Marvel Mags is. And uh, that's the Comics Code Authority stamp, Pussycats. Uh, Stan explains a bit about what the CCA is. He compares it to the uh, you know motion pictures being rated. He claims to be delighted to be working with the CCA, as they have the same ultimate goal as Marvel, which is telling fun stories in good taste. Stan tips his hat to Code Administrator Len Darwin and his staff for all their hard work. Now, this is a very diplomatic answer, and I decided to dig a little bit deeper and found a just about as equally <laughs> diplomatic answer in Stan Lee Conversations by uh, Lawrence and Lindsay Van Gelder, 2007, where the man would be quoted as saying the following. It's, the CCA, is headed by Leonard Darvin, a most capable attorney and most conscientious code administrator. And Len Darvin and his staff of experts, or censors, or critics, or observers, I really don't know what to call them, his staff... They read everything that goes into the comics, and they put their seal of approval on every book before it goes to the engraver. Now, this is not just a cover-up. It's not just some window dressing to impress people. Oh, we spend a lot of time arguing with the code. Why can't we have a story like this, or a theme like this, or a picture like this? And he'll say, well, you gotta remember, it may be okay for older readers, and I know you have many of them, but we still have a lot of younger readers, and we need to think about them. And he very often sets us back on possibly the right path of worrying about the really young readers. So I think this mentioning of the code, which I don't always agree with, as far as any parent being concerned with a young child reading these magazines, I think these magazines are policed as carefully and possibly more carefully than motion pictures or really anything else a child will read. So yeah, a very diplomatic response, and it'll still be about two or three years before Stan, um, you know, kind of butts heads with the CCA and winds up publishing a few issues of Spider-Man that uh, handle drug-related content without the CCA branding on it. But I'm sure we'll be talking much more about that as we continue uh, the Essential series into uh, the early 70s. From here, we got our Mighty Marvel checklist here. Uh, not brand ech, number six. Spidey gets engaged, or Spidey Man gets engaged. I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I gotta make sure I say the right name. And the human Scorch gets married. <clears throat> The love and marriage issue, by the way. Fantastic 471 ends the rampaging thing saga. Spider-Man 57 has Spider-Man versus Kazar, or Kazar. Avengers 48, enter the Black Knight. Daredevil number 36 has DD versus the Trapster, still. Thor 148 has Thor versus the Wrecker. Marvel Superheroes number 12, the first part of that Captain Marvel story for the second month running, so please buy the damn thing. Suspense 98, Iron Man vs. Whiplash, still. And Captain America teaming with the Black Panther, still. Uh, Tales to Astonish 100, Hulk vs. Submariner, we already talked about that. Strange Tales number 165, Nick Fury vs. Yellowclaw, still. And Doctor Strange in Nightmare. Sergeant Fury number 50, The Howlers attempt to rescue Izzy Cohen. Captain Savage number 1 promises to be pulse pounding and a bombshell. Then we got our reprint corner, Collector's Item Classics 13, and Marvel Tales 12. Finally, the MMMS box. We got 26 new members, and nobody stands out. Well, just like Captain Savage, um, my pulse is pounding, and also my head. So let's hop right into the shoutouts. Thanking the folks who engaged with and uh, helped to uh, spread the word about this program on social media. 
Over on Twitter, I want to thank Fan Film Friday's podcast, Chris Bailey, Ed Moore, 21st Century Boys, Joe Crawford, Billy D, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Dave Schultz, Tony Renner, Professor Allen, Lance Lumley, uh, Wayne Burroughs, Pat Sampson, Jesse D. Young, Radioactive Dinosaur, and Mark Jagger. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Evan Bevins, Jesse D. Young, Pat Sampson, Joe Crawford, Chris Bailey, Billy D., Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, and I just realized that when uh, Podbean publishes an episode, it automatically sends out a Facebook message on uh, the old Chris's on Infinite Earths group, which I haven't checked in, like, months at this point. I I almost forgot that uh, I even set it to do that. But it does get a little bit of interactivity there. Uh, Not much, but... But a little bit, and so I definitely want to thank uh, Betty Gold for uh, interacting with that post. Uh, Betty Gold, for those who uh, don't know, is uh, Reggie's mother. And just about every day she'll give my post a thumbs up, and that uh, that really does mean a lot to me. So uh, thank you. Speaking of the thank yous here, let's head over to the Patreon. Patreon.com slash xlapsed. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. I'm sorry I skipped the shout-out section last episode. I was just not feeling great at all. So thank you so much to everybody. Um, this is the 50th episode. I want to thank you all for sticking with me for this long, for helping me to push through with all your kind words and encouragement. It, it really does mean so much to me. I, I wish there was more I could do. I had plans for the 50th episode, but then I couldn't see straight for a day and a half. So um, <laughs> it's just a regular program here. Maybe somewhere down the line. I, I know we have uh, the 300th episode of Regular x Labs coming up pretty soon, so maybe that'll be... That'll be the one that we do up, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. But thank you all so much for your support, for listening, for just keeping me company here on this crazy little uh, unimportant journey into uh, X minutia and history. And thanks so much for letting me keep you company for a little while today. So until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.